This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Good morning. My name's, oh, wait a minute, let's try that again. You had an extra hour of sleep, so I I expect at least 10% more energy for this, all right? Uh, Good morning. There we go. Uh, My name's Josh, one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here uh, with us this morning. We have been in a series called uh, Making Room. We're hoping to make room uh, for more stories, like just those little snippets you heard uh, on the video a moment ago. But rather than our normal um, uh, bulletins, we've had a slimmed-down version of those uh, just with the order of worship on it. Uh, But instead, we've been using um, some Making Room booklets that we'd like you all to have. If you don't have one yet, raise your hand. Don't be shy. We have some folks who are ready to hand them out to you. Um, so if, raise, them, raise them high. We've got some mics passing them out. I think Paul and some others are uh, passing them out in the, in the uh, balconies as well. But in this booklet, you'll be able to read about the specifics of the Making Room Project, what we're hoping to do, what we're moving forward to do as a church over these next few years and really into the next couple of decades. Uh, also, there are individual uh, pages for, uh, to take notes and scripture readings during the sermon series uh, during this time as well, and so you can utilize it uh, that way. Also, I just want to mention while they're handing those out that we have a, a website um, that you can read about all these things as well. If you go onto the newcitycincy.org, uh, which is our homepage on the top bar, you'll see a place where you can click Making Room, and then that will take you to uh, a series of pages that will give you all kinds of information, including some videos describing the project and what everything is about. There's also an information area in the commons where you can ask questions, uh, see some drawings. Uh, you can uh, talk to some folks about Making Room as well. There's also uh, Making Room tote bags out there today. So if you have things to tote, we have a bag for you uh, for that uh, purpose. So make sure and stop by and grab one of those. Well, alongside, though, the, the Making Room initiative, we've been talking about what it means to be a generous church, and, and not just generous in terms of money, but what does it mean to be generous with our time? What does it mean to be generous with our affection? What does it mean to be generous with our hearts? To meet the needs in the lives of people around us. Because ultimately, uh, it's not going to do any good to make room physically for more ministry in a building if we aren't also making room in our own hearts, right? First for the Lord, right? picking up the Christmas carol theme of let every heart prepare him room. But also making room for others in our lives, making room for hospitality, making room for ministry, making room uh, for our neighbors and our friends and our family, and especially making room for those who are in need. And so to think about those things, we've been looking at Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And uh, so week one, two weeks ago, we saw Paul sort of laying out for the Corinthian church the inspiring example of the Macedonian church, of their sacrificial generosity. And then last week, week two, was just Paul giving his straight gospel, right? Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the generosity of Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And then today, we're going to finish chapter 8, And really what Paul is doing for us in the rest of the chapter is painting a portrait of what it is, uh, what what a church looks like that God will use to meet the needs of others around them. What does it look like? What does a church have to be? What does a community have to have in order to make room, to meet needs, to be a part of the extension of God's kingdom? And so if you have a Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles in your rows, it's page 968. If you're in the Making Room books, it's page 40, I believe. I'm going to cheat a little bit, though, because uh, it says in your Making Room books that we're looking at verse 13 to 24. I'm actually going to dip back into last week's text a little bit. We're going to start with verse 10 today. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to re- read from verse 10 to the end of the chapter. Hear now God's word. Paul writes, And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, But that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need. There may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal... But being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to turn our hearts to you this morning. We pray. In Jesus Christ's holy name, amen. All right, so Paul is painting a a portrait of a church that is useful, right, in meeting the needs of those around them. And and the portrait that he gives us, he says it's a community of vulnerability, solidarity, contentment, and intentionality. If we are going to New City Church, if we are going to be a people that God uses to meet the needs of others, we have to be a community of vulnerability, solidarity, contentment, and intentionality. So let's think about it that way this morning. First, a community of vulnerability. Now, just a little context. If you weren't here the last couple weeks, if you were here the last couple weeks, bear with me because we did talk about this. But just to back up and let you know what's going on, Paul is raising money for a mission project. There was a famine in the land, and the church in Jerusalem had been hit particularly hard by this. They had less margin to deal with it. They were already a poor community, and so they didn't have any margin to absorb this difficult time, and so they're really struggling. Now, at the same time, Paul is planting churches across the Greco-Roman world, uh, the Greek-speaking 
world in the Roman Empire. And he, as he's planting these churches, he tells them of the needs uh, in the church in Jerusalem and begins to raise funds from these new churches in order to send to help uh, relieve some of the needs in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Corinth was very excited to hear about this. They wanted to be a part of this. They pledged to give to this. You can even read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul's first letter. They're all in, they say. And they start to give. But then something happens, and they taper off. And so you see in verse 10 and 11 that Paul is saying, all right, you had the desire to give. Now, Corinthians, I want you to finish what you've started. And we all know, right, there is a difference between having a desire to do something and then actually doing it, right? Some of us can identify with the gap between those things, having a desire and then the follow-through. Right? Shakespeare put it in, in The Merchant of Venice. He said, I can easier teach 20 what were good to be done than to be one of the 20 to follow my own teaching. Again, I think a lot of us resonate with that. It's easier to desire to do something than to actually do it. It's easier to want to be generous than to actually give generously. And so Paul says, Corinthians, I want you to finish what you started. And the way he challenges them in this is by giving them an example of some folks who do this. The Macedonian church who hadn't just desired to give, but they actually followed through. They gave generously. They gave willingly. They gave freely. They gave sacrificially. But then that does raise the question, why were the Macedonians able to give so freely and generously while it was so much harder for the Corinthians to do the same. Why could the Macedonians do it? Why was it hard for the Corinthians to do it? And in answering that question, it might help to know a little bit about the history of the Macedonian church. In Acts chapter 16, it tells us that the first followers of Jesus in that area were kind of an odd mix of folks. There was a woman named Lydia, there was a Philippian jailer, and there was a slave girl. These are the people that God uses to start this church, this new church, this new community of Christ followers. Lydia was wealthy. She had a small business. She was well-traveled. She was educated. She was a woman of the world in that sense. A Philippian jailer, working class, could pay the bills probably, but also not a lot of exposure to things outside of his own community. Certainly wouldn't have had a formal education. And then there was the slave girl who'd been exploited taken advantage of, virtually no economic means. These are the members, the first members of the churches in Macedonia. This new church family would have known a whole spectrum of needs. Now add to that, earlier in chapter 8, Paul talks about them as a group. They had experienced severe affliction and extreme poverty, he says, and yet they begged, they begged, they begged to get in on helping others. They begged to join the mission of God. They begged to take part in this fundraising campaign to give to the church in Jerusalem. Now, by contrast, the Corinthian, right, Macedonians, I can't remember which hand was Macedonians. This hand is the Corinthian church. Uh, now I'm confusing you all, just for my own mental awareness. The Corinthians, by contrast, uh, were affluent, right? Relatively speaking, at least, they were wealthy. They were in a city of great commerce. They had all kinds of gifts represented in the church. They had political standing within the Roman Empire. The Macedonians were in hard times. The Corinthians had wealth. You'd expect that it would be the Corinthians who would be the ones who would overflow with generosity, but in fact, it was just the reverse. 
Paul lifts up the church in Macedonia as an example to spur on the church in Corinth. And here's what I want you to take note of here. There's something about being in need, something about the experience of vulnerability that unlocks generosity. I've been reading uh, Christine Pohl's book, which is called Making Room. Uh, It's an academic book. It's about the, the history of hospitality within the Christian tradition. And she tells a story in there about her grandmother. And I'll just read to you what she wrote. She starts by quoting her grandmother. I was an orphan at 13. No one should ever be alone. These two simple sentences provided a window into my 91-year-old grandmother's determination that, once again, we would take Christmas dinner to an elderly acquaintance of hers who lives several towns away. For all of her long life, my grandmother had welcomed countless acquaintances and strangers, but never before had she or I connected this consistent practice of hospitality to her own childhood experience of having been left alone, raised in an unfamiliar and sometimes unkind household. Her distant but still vivid memory of having been an orphan and stranger sustained a lifelong passion for hospitality. Impatient with her descendants, who did not always share her hospitable bent, she chided us when we tried to remind her that Mr. Arthur often seemed to have more food than he needed when we brought the holiday dinners. With obvious frustration, she explained, it's not about the food you know. It's about knowing someone cares. She goes on. My grandmother's comments express a fundamental truth about hospitality, that the experience of having been a stranger or of being a vulnerable person on the margins of society is often connected with offering hospitality. When hospitality involves more than entertaining family and friends, when it crosses social boundaries and builds community, when it meets significant human needs and reflects divine generosity, we often find hosts who see themselves in some way as marginal to the larger society. The experience of being vulnerable moves you toward meeting needs of others. There's an article a little while back in the uh, magazine The Atlantic called Why the Rich Don't Give to Charity. And here's what the author says. One of the most surprising and perhaps confounding realities of charity in America is that the people who can least afford to give are the ones who donate the greatest percentage of their income. And the article goes on to reference the work of Paul Piff. Paul Piff is a psychologist at UC Berkeley. He published a series of studies explaining that lower-income people were consistently more generous with limited goods than upper-class participants were. Lower-income Americans gave away almost three times as much of the percentage of their income as the wealthiest Americans. Now, in absolute dollars, the wealthy gave away significantly more money, right? Most of the money was still given in real dollars by wealthy Americans, but in percentage of income, lower-income Americans gave away nearly three times as much. The article goes on to ask, why is this the case? Lower-income Americans are presumably no more intrinsically moral, no more intrinsically generous than anyone else, so why the difference between the two? And one of the studies noted that when both groups were exposed to the same sympathy-eliciting video on child poverty, the two groups' willingness to help became almost identical. Pith's research suggests The exposure to need drives generous behavior. Exposure to need 
drives generous behavior. And then the author of the article asks a challenging question. Could it be that the isolation of our classes is part of what's creating the problem? There's something about a personal, direct exposure to or experience of need that unlocks generosity. And so for Christians who want to be useful in serving our neighbors and honoring God and meeting needs in our city, we have to regularly be recalling and thinking to ourselves, how has God met me in need? How has God come to me when I was needy? And then also asking the question, a corollary question, how am I drawing near to human needs? How do I get proximate to the needs of others rather than isolating myself or retreating from the needs and problems of others? So first, right, Paul's saying this has to be a community of vulnerability. Experience of or exposure to needs unlocks generosity. But then secondly, this also has to be a community of solidarity. Starting in verse 12, Paul talks about a sense of willingness, a readiness. See a need and then try to meet it. And he says that the goal here is not that you would be impoverished so that someone else can flourish In other words, it's not just trading places, right? Somebody experiencing uh, real lack so that somebody else can uh, experience abundance. But rather, there there would be a sharing of burdens, a connection between people, a cooperation that happens, a sense of solidarity. Or to put it another way, a sense of us-ness. I think I made up that word, or somebody else did. It's probably not a real word, but I think you get what we're saying. A sense of us-ness. Eugene Peterson put it this way. He said, one of the immediate changes that the gospel makes is grammatical. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. We instead of I, our instead of my, us instead of me. When someone becomes a Christian, when they become a follower of Christ, there is a sense of union with Jesus Christ. We're incorporated into God's family. But with that comes not just God as our Father, but then all kinds of brothers and sisters as well, as well as a sense of common mission and care, an us-ness. Abe Cho works for Redeemer City to City in, uh, in New York. He tells the story of his parents coming to the United States from Korea. His dad uh, was going to start a program, I believe, at the University of Illinois. And um, his dad was a Christian, and so he, through his church in Korea, had connected with a Korean-speaking church, I think near Chicago in, uh, in Illinois. And so, um, but his mom was not a believer, was not a Christian at the time, but she was amazed that when their plane landed... In the United States, for the very first time, right there at the airport was a Korean pastor and members of the church there to meet them at the airport, and then they helped them to find an apartment, and then they helped her to find a job in order to make ends meet while he was in school. In this small little immigrant community, they found a place of deep belonging. And Abe Cho, reflecting on this, he says that probably... The pastor did not need to convince the folks from the church to help out because they knew what it was like. They begged to be a part of helping this new family get situated because of their own experience of being an immigrant and perhaps also because of the common 
experience of their ethnic identity. It led to a solidarity. What's so interesting in our story, though, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, there's not a lot of overlap between these two groups of people. There's not a lot of shared identity, at least not in the human sense, not a lot of commonality or things to unite these folks together. Different churches, different regions, different languages that they spoke. They had never met personally. They were unlikely ever to meet personally. The church in Corinth was Gentile. The church in Jerusalem were Jews. But Paul is pushing them to live out of something fundamental about their Christian identity. And someone once said, you can actually summarize the theme of all of Paul's letters in two words. All the emphasis in Paul's letters, all the big theme in Paul's letters, all of them, most of the New Testament said you could summarize in two words, in Christ. In Christ. The big theological concept that Paul is exegeting in all of those letters, what does it mean to be in Christ? And he's, for Paul, that's the bedrock of Christianity, right? That's what, how we are to see ourselves above any allegiance, above any commitment, is that we are in Christ. And so this collection becomes so important for the Apostle Paul. Gentile churches sending money hundreds of miles away to meet the needs of Jewish believers that they had never met and probably never would meet. For Paul, this is a rock-solid, tangible outworking of that theological concept of which he's been writing for decades, that together we are in Christ. In Christ. Everything else can be different. But if we are in Christ... There's a commonality, there's a solidarity, there's a, an usness. And when we have it, it unlocks generosity to join in God's mission alongside God's people. Thirdly, Paul says to meet needs, we need to be a community of vulnerability, we need to be a, a community of solidarity, but then thirdly, we have to be a community of contentment. Verse 15. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, what Paul's doing here, he's quoting from a story that had shaped the imagination of the people of God for thousands of years. He's talking about the exodus from Egypt, being set free from slavery in Egypt. In particular, he's quoting from Exodus chapter 16, where God had provided manna from heaven for the people of God while they were in the wilderness on their way, on their journey to the promised land. And Paul's point here in quoting this is that they too, the Corinthian church, and really all of us by extension, we have been liberated, not from Egypt, but from slavery to sin and death. Jesus is our liberator, our rescuer. And now we, just like the Corinthians, are on our way to the promised land, to the kingdom of God. And just as God had provided manna for Israel on their journey, so he will provide for you on yours. Paul's point in bringing this out is that when you have a God like this, who meets needs like this, you cannot live out of scarcity anymore. But you have to live out of a sense of abundance. And so we have to remind ourselves, we have to remind each other that we have a God who can provide what we need just when we need it. A God who can provide what we need just when we need it. The Dutch economist Bob Goudsward, a Christian 
man, professor at the Free University of Amsterdam. Interesting guy. He was also elected to Dutch Parliament, served in Parliament for a number of years. He uh, worked with the International Monetary Fund. He worked with the World Bank. But here's what he says about this issue of abundance, addressing the idea of living with a sense of abundance. He says, it is in knowing the meaning of enough that we receive a sense of abundance. For abundance is the awareness of having more than enough. Think about that for a second. It's in knowing the meaning of enough that we have a sense of abundance, for abundance is the awareness of having more than enough. You can never really have a sense of abundance, never really experience abundance until you also know what enough is. And this is a hard thing in 21st century America. Maybe it's hard everywhere, but especially in the culture in which we live, because we live in a culture of not enough. The vast majority of the advertising that you're going to see even today when you leave here on television or social media or billboards or radio is all going to be based on the idea that you don't have enough, right? You need to buy our thing. You need to take our course. You need to go on our trip in order to be really happy. What you have now, in other words, is not enough. Now, that can be the case with consumption, right? We run after this product or these clothes or this house or that vacation because we don't feel like we have enough. But it also can be true of saving. Oversaving can be just as compulsive, just as fearful, just as faithless, thinking, ooh, there's never enough. Until we know what enough is, we will short-circuit any sense of abundance. We'll lose contentment. And then it will become very, very hard to give anything away, be it our time, our gifts, or our money. Do you know what enough is? Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann says, the only way to replace the myth of scarcity is with a liturgy of abundance. The only way to replace the myth of scarcity is by devoting yourself to a liturgy of abundance. That is, reading from God's Word, singing songs about God's provision, right? the Bible and hymns together, rehearsing stories of God's goodness and sovereignty and provision. Then hearing stories from others in the body of Christ about how God has met them in the midst of their need praying the Lord's Prayer together, especially the line, give us this day our daily bread. Coming to the Lord's Supper to be fed and strengthened for the journey. This is all about a liturgy of abundance, building up in your life a liturgy of abundance. To be a church that meets needs. We need to be a community of vulnerability, solidarity, contentment, and then finally, intentionality. I'm not going to read uh, verses 16 to 24 again, but this is where Paul goes through the practicalities of the collection. Now, for those of you who know me well, you probably know that my, my bent, my personality, my temperament is toward the grassroots and the organic and the, ooh, why do we need all this formality kind of stuff? But you read the details here, not just in this section, but in other parts of the New Testament and in Paul's letter, and you can see why Presbyterians historically latch on to this idea of decently and in order. 
I used to be, I tell people this all the time, I used to be so bored by our denomination's book of church order, like snore fest, right? Uh, you know, uh, reads like a logarithm, you know, at points. Uh, not exciting stuff. I used to be so bored by polity until I planted a church. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. We don't have to invent this stuff from scratch. There really are such things as best, best practices for how to be organized and how to have controls and how to have accountability and how to have transparency. And that's what Paul is laying out for them here. He wants them to have confidence about the way that they're going to take up this collection and distribute this offering. It's not off the cuff. It's not just Paul calling the shots by himself. There's a system. There's multiple people involved, layers of people involved. There are people that the Corinthians know and trust. This is one of the reasons why here at New City, we've been so deliberate about this process of the Making Room Initiative. It really goes back all the way to 2018. We were getting ready for 2019, which was our 10-year celebration. We were starting to gather and tell stories about all the things that had happened in the first decade of our life together as a church. But then we also began to dream ahead and think, what's next? And what will the next decade hold? And as much as we can project and think, what will that be like? What are we hoping for? What are we praying for? And so the elders uh, organized a master plan team to form. And this was a group of folks from different areas of the church, 12, 15 folks, I think, and uh, people from uh, elder, the elder board, from deacons, from music, from children's ministry, from women's ministry, from hospitality, from mercy ministry, and they were all represented on this uh, team, the master plan team. They did their research. They visited other churches they met for several years and began to develop the first iterations of a plan, of a design, of some sort of thinking and dreaming about what we might need going forward, and eventually working with an architect and a builder. Now, all the while this is going on, the elders, and to some extent the deacons, were trying to figure out a way not to do this. In other words, not to build on anything to the church. And we had bought these houses adjacent to the church building, and so we asked, and could we just renovate those? Could, could the renovation of those houses, could that space meet the needs that we thought we were going to have going forward? And so we invested money. We did code studies. We began to think through, is it possible to utilize those present structures, even if they were really worn down? Could we renovate them and make them work? And the answer came back pretty clear, no. Some of it was code. Some of it was the spaces weren't useful for the kinds of things we were hoping to do with them. Then the elders thought, well, all right, still, how can we not do this project? And, and so uh, they sent Brian Ferry out, sort of like a lamb, to the slaughter, to the church on the other corner, who at the time was not using much of their uh, education wing. And so asking, you know, would you consider selling the education wing to us? And we could use that building and renovate it, and we could connect our parking lots and walk through and make use of that building. And Brian went and asked, and they said politely, no, no thank you. The elders said, well, Brian, why don't you go and ask again another time? And so Brian went and he asked again. And this time they said no more strongly, let's say. Well, this is part of how we got here to this point. The making room booklet you have in your hands, the information on the website, the booth out there in the lobby, that will tell you some more about it. But we want you to know that what we're laying before you now uh, during this period is the work of a lot of people over a lot of time some intentionality from the leaders of the church, some deliberateness to the planning, lots of people involved. But there's also a kind of intentionality 
that we're to have as individual people in our personal giving. Remember, Paul here is writing to them, to the Corinthians, and he's saying, we're going to do this, right? We're going forward. We're going with this uh, collection. And so I want you to be ready when we get there to give, right? This is what we're going to do, and I want you to be ready to give. I want you to be intentional. I want you to have this letter he's saying to the Corinthians. I want you to have thought it out by the time we get there, to have prayed over it, and then to be ready to give, not under compulsion, but to give willingly, not reactive, but thoughtfully, not impulsive, but prayerfully, not easy, but sacrificially, not begrudging, but joyfully. That's also one of the reasons why we're taking five weeks to do this series, and even longer if you go back to when we had a vision night in September. We want to give you plenty of time to think and to pray over these commitment cards between now and Commitment Sunday on November 20th. So to be a church that God will use to meet needs, we have to be a community of vulnerability, of solidarity, of contentment, and intentionality. And as we close, let me give you just a couple questions, some diagnostic questions to think about yourself, to talk about in your community groups, or to talk with others in your household. And I'll just read them to you. Uh, First, how am I drawing near to the needs of others? Or to put it another way, how can I be proximate to needs in my neighborhood or in my city? That's questions of vulnerability. Number two, are you connected? Do you have a sense of us-ness? And how can you lean into that? For some of us, that might mean getting involved in a group for the first time, finding ways to serve, asking folks out to lunch, all in an attempt to know and to be known. Those are questions of solidarity. Number three, Do you know what enough is? How can you leave behind a scarcity mindset and live into a sense of abundance? It's a contentment question. And then finally, is there a prayerful intentionality to your giving? Am I taking the time before the Lord to consider what he's calling me to give? That's a question of intentionality. So even as you're thinking about these things and talking about them hopefully throughout the week, let's pray together now. And then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper where we get to remember and to experience the God who meets our needs on this journey he's calling us on together. Let's pray. Lord, we pray now um, for an understanding and for a strong sense of your provision and care for us. Would you banish from us the myth of scarcity? Would you help us to pattern our lives after a liturgy of abundance? Would you make us to be a generous people, a compassionate people, and a people willing to move toward needs rather than to move away from them? We won't be able to do this on our own, and so we, we ask for your help. We need your spirit. Would you come to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.